Old Testament reading comes from Job 38, verses 1 through 7. Listen to the word of God to you. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And our first New Testament reading comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This ends the reading of our lesson. Thanks be to God. So before I uh, preach, I'd like to give thanks. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says, This is the will of the Lord to give thanks in all circumstances. I just want to thank you all for working into my contracts and vacation time. We had a relaxing vacation at a treehouse in Eureka Springs. Do we, do we have an image of the treehouse? Can we go to the next slide? Yeah. So there's uh, the image from the porch. and. There's my feet, so if you ever wanted to see your pastor's feet, it's your Sunday. It is your Sunday this Sunday. Let's go to the next slide. Thanks for your invitation. As we, we know here at first, we believe we have three talents, which we're defining as simple gifts that you can do to grow your church. And those are your giving, your invitation, and your prayers. So thank you if you ever decide to invite anyone to church. We try to make it a good experience. So thank you for very much. Uh, thanks for a new six-week sermon series on Ephesians. We're going to be using other texts, but I'll be mainly focusing on Ephesians because this time in the church calendar is the, the season of Epiphany, which we don't focus as much on Christmas, but the idea of Epiphany is actually that the shepherds and the three kings showed up at different times. The shepherd, the three kings traveled further, showed up a couple of, maybe a month or so, 
after the, the shepherds did to worship Jesus. And the word epiphany is very much similar to the word eureka, which means I found it. I had a revelation about what God is doing in the world. And I think at the beginning of a new year, we all need that. Right? We all need a revelation about what God is doing in our lives. And traditionally, Epiphany falls on January 6th this year. I want to start a little early and use it as an opportunity to do a sermon series called The Mystery of Epiphanies. When we have an epiphany in our life, how does that happen? Why does that happen? And our first sermon is about sorting through signs. So here the rest of the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, continuing where we uh, left off from our call to worship, and then we'll sing Let Us Break Bread together after the sermon. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith, in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, I do not stop giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you might know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of the mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh dear Heavenly Father, we do need a Eureka moment, a revelation in our lives of you as Emmanuel, as God with us. Lord, would we lay down our crowns? Would we lay down control and sorting through signs that we may not follow signs, but signs might follow us? Lord, any words that I say that are not of your will, I ask that they fall to the ground and be forgotten. But anything I say that is of your will, I ask that embed in hearts and bear good fruit unto the kingdom of God. Lord, let us not hinder your word, but feed your sheep in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you may have noted that on December uh, 21st of last year, wow, it was last year already, um, there was a new star in the sky, an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn. And some of you might be wondering, was that the Christmas star? Was that the star that the Magi followed to Jesus? Well, I actually looked into that, and N.T. Wright, a very well-known Bible scholar says there are a couple of different possibilities. It could have been Halley's Comet, though the timing doesn't seem quite right for that. It could have been a supernova. And yes, it could have been an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn. So yeah, maybe you were seeing the very star that the wise men saw. My own personal preference is to say it was like a supernatural manifestation, because that's a weird way for stars to move. Like, 
going like moving like that, but no one really knows. It's a little shrouded, right, in mystery. Exactly what happened and how it happened is a little shrouded in mystery, even for us Christians. But what is not shrouded is that I'm going to use this as an opportunity to tell astronomy jokes. I am totally going to use it as an opportunity. So how does Jupiter hold up his trousers? With an asteroid belt. What type of song do planets sing? Neptunes. Why did Mars, what did Mars say to Saturn? Give me a ring sometime. In all seriousness, though, did you guys know that the density of Saturn is so, so, like, in volume that you could, like, place it on your bathtub and it would float? You may not want to do that because it would leave some pretty huge rings behind. Speaking of tubs, you may remember if you've studied the history of mathematics that there was a eureka moment with a bathtub with an ancient uh, mathematician named Archimedes. And Scientific America tells the story as we, we are told it. Let's begin with the story. The local tyrant contracts the ancient Greek polymath Archimedes to detect fraud in the manufacturing of a golden crown. Said tyrant, name of Hero, suspects his goldsmith of leaving out some measure of gold and replacing it with silver or a wreath dedicated to, for the wreath dedicated to the gods. Archimedes accepts the challenge and during a subsequent trip to the public baths realizes that most of his body sinks into the water the more the water is displaced, making the displaced water an exact measure of his volume. Because gold weighs more than silver, he reasons that a crown mixed with silver would have to be bulkier to reach the same weight as one composed of gold. Therefore, it would displace more water than its pure gold counterpart. Realizing he has hit a solution, the young Greek math whiz leaps up out of the bath and rushes home naked, crying, Eureka, Eureka, or translated, I found it, I found it. Well, you need to find some clothes too, Archimedes. You need to find some clothes too. Well, that's a neat story illustrating a neat discovery, but we don't actually know, if you do a little research, we don't actually know if it happened that way. As far as I was able to find, the nearest recording of that story was written down 200 years after Archimedes died. 200 years after he died, multiple generations after he died. Many scholars think it's a parable to illustrate many true principles about Archimedes' life, things he actually did we tell a story to illustrate those parables. So yet, um, you may, the New Testament was written long before the story of Archimedes was recorded as far as the events it's recording. The Gospel of Matthew was written, written in 85 AD, 52 years after Christ rose from the dead, 85 years after he was born. The letter to Ephesians was lit, written 62 to 72 AD, 29 to 39 years after Christ rose from the dead, and 62 to 72 years after he was born. Even if you don't believe the New Testament is word for word the word of God, and there may be some people today who find this video and don't, the text, it was recorded closer to the events than most ancient history that were taught in school. 
It was recorded in the lifetimes of those who saw it, which in our modern history standards isn't that great, but back then it was pretty good. It was pretty good. And yet, we don't question at its face the story of Archimedes, even though it was recorded 200 years after the fact, yet because the Bible talks about some pretty unbelievable and miraculous stuff, we question it on its face value, even though it was recorded in the lifetimes of those who witness it. You see, what I just did there is what Christians call apologetics. Not that I owe the world an apology, but it's trying to explain in a rational way for those who don't think the Bible is the word of God, why you should believe the Bible is the word of God, meeting with people on their territory, such as history or science, and making an argument for why you should believe what the Bible says. But I'm just going to say, while apologetics is an interesting discipline, I don't think most of us come to faith because of reasoned arguments. The Bible says faith is a gift. And it is a mysterious gift. But the good news today, you don't need to be an apologist. You don't need to be a historian. You don't need to be a scientist to witness to your faith, to be guided by God, and to witness to others. You can have an epiphany of the risen Christ. You can help others have an epiphany of the risen Christ. And you don't even need to know as much as I need to know, having gone to seminary. The good news today is this. When we sort through what the Bible teaches us about signs, we will see God guiding us even when all the stars have burned out. So what we need to understand is three things. What is our spiritual hunger? What gets in the way of us being fed and us feeding others? And what is God's plan to satisfy our spiritual hunger? What is our spiritual hunger? You see, God is using whatever this star is to speak to the Magi's spiritual hunger. You see, the word Magi elsewhere in Scripture means sorcerer. And these guys were probably from modern-day Iran. They were probably astrologers, and they probably got paid a lot of money for it. That's why they could make the journey. But the Bible is quite clear that God is not super fun of astrology and sorcery from Deuteronomy. And beware, unless you raise your eyes to the heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of the heavens, you be drawn away and bow down to them and to serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heavens. In Deuteronomy 18, when you come into the land of the Lord your God is given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons and daughters as an offering, anyone who practices divination, fortune-telling, interprets omens, sorcerers or charmers, mediums, necromancers who inquire of the dead. For whoever does these things is abominable to the Lord. And because of these ab ab abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You see, what I believe God is doing with his people in the Old Testament is he's putting training wheels on a bicycle to protect them. But in the New Testament, he's taking the training wheels off because he wants his word to go through all the nations. And he wants to use the beliefs of all the nations to draw people to himself, whether they be true or false. And you see, God knew the Magi. God knew the Magi. God knew if he sent just a regular a human being, they wouldn't believe him. 
God knew if he sent an angel, they would worship the angel as a god. So he said, ah, the stars. They believe in the stars. I will use the stars to guide them to the one who made the stars. You see, it's an interesting question. It really is what the star was. But it misses the point. The point is not that a star formed in the sky. The point is that Emmanuel formed in a manger. He, that he was born, that he is God with us. And we have a greater treasure than anything the Magi brought to Jesus that day. This is what Paul says. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation that you might know what the inheritance is in the saints and that the church may be that star. Whatever the star was then, we know what the star is now. We are that star. The church is that star. Here's what he says in Philippians. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud I do not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should rejoice with me. Our culture will not be won to Christ by complaining about how our culture is taking Christ out of Christmas. It won't be won to Christ by theological, historical, or scientific arguments. It will be won to Christ by Christ-like character. People who follow signs will be won to Christ when signs follow us. But we are not to follow signs. We are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and we are to minister to people's spiritual hunger. We are to meet them where they're at. Well, Chris Walker of evangelismcoach.org, a friend of mine, says that every human being has about nine spiritual hungers. That's not nine, that's five. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine spiritual hungers. I need to learn to count. Obviously, math was not my major. And they are forgiveness, removal of guilt, belonging, healing, physical healing, healing, emotional healing, guidance or direction in life, internal peace, justice, and unconditional love. What are people looking for? Those nine categories sum up what everyone in this world is looking for. And if we minister to those nine categories, maybe they will have a revelation of Christ. But why aren't we fed, and why do we have trouble feeding people? Well, I think there are two reasons for that. One is trying to control the universe, and two is trying to categorize people. Shankar Vedantam, in his episode of Hidden Brain, the sorting hat points this out by using the analogy of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Any Harry Potter fans here? Not the right crowd for that, apparently. <laughs> In the film, the boy wizard and his friends are tagging, tending Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And apparently there's this magical hat that they place on their heads to determine which house they're supposed to be in based on their personality. To quote Vedantam, after judging their personality traits and potential, it decides which house they belong to during the Hogwarts education. Will it be brave Gryffindor? Gentle Hufflepuff, smart Ravenclaw, or ambitious Slyther Slytherin. 
I did not have the, the hat from the movie, but I did um, have a different hat that my wife and I, I got. So <laughs> this is a hat a Texan would wear to Hogwarts, and he would say, don't fence me in. Don't put me in a house. Don't put me in a house. Don't fence me in. So the, the idea of this is somehow through, through magic, we, we can determine people's future. Now some of you may be thinking, oh, I'm glad he's going to Harry Potter. Others of you may be thinking, oh, Pastor, you practicing witchcraft? I am not practicing witchcraft. It is entertainment. And you're not practicing witchcraft if you watch Harry Potter, Star Wars, or fantasy football, as long as you know what aligns with the gospel and what doesn't. Look, I do a good Yoda impression. That does not mean I'm possessed by a demon. Maybe some of you think, Maybe, I, maybe you think that, but that is not the case. You see, witchcraft, I think, what the scripture is pointing to is more about attitude than content. <clears throat> Do you believe you are in control? Are you trying to control outcomes? Do you believe you can categorize people? And we can do that with magic, science, religion, psychology, or politics. Take, for example, a very common test that many people in corporations use called the Myers-Briggs test. Probably many of you have heard about it. Um, my mom even used it in her career. I'm an INFJ for as much as that matters to people who understand um, what that means. And it's an interesting test, but it can be used in the wrong ways. One psychologist uh, in the story suggests that it's not really super predictive scientifically than another test that called the Big Five is better predictive, but even so, um, this one psychologist, his name is Adam Grant, argues that they should not be used to determine who gets the job. To quote the story, it's a great way to weed out all kinds of diversity. There was a company in Canada not long ago where there was a major acquisition made, and the CEO gave every single person who has acquired the Myers-Briggs and then fired everyone who didn't match his type. What Vedantam found is that these tests are powerful because we believe in them. That because of the expectations, they shape who people become. Because of the categories we put people in. And the fact of the matter is none of us have a categorizing cap, a sorting cap. This cap doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God. And when we start categorizing people, it's really an effort of control. It's really an effort, it's easier than building a loving environment where we may disagree, but we refuse to love, leave each other because of the love of Christ. It's easier, it's easier, but it's not what God calls us to. Well then, how does God satisfy our spiritual hunger? Well, one Christian psychologist I like, Henry Townsend, points this out in Changes That Heal, a book I would recommend you guys. He says there are three, category, three ingredients to satisfying spiritual hunger. Grace, truth, and time. Grace is unmerited love and favor. And that's what we all need. We all need people to give us some grace. And those people who give us grace can lead us Truth is the fact that there are limits, there are rules, we can't live without limits. There are consequences to ideas and beliefs, and truth doesn't care what you believe. You will find the truth. 
and the truth can set you free or run you over, but you will know the truth, and it can set you free. And finally, there is time, and this is the most important part. Here's what um, Townsend says. God has a sick creation. He needs to do surgery. Thus, he places us in the operating room of redemptive time. Into our veins, he pumps the life-giving blood of grace and truth. During surgery, he excises evil and brings the renewed patient back into eternity, into a holy state. We don't know how long this surgery will last. We only know that we are expected to participate actively in our own surgery, and we don't get any anesthesia for the procedure. That's why growing up in the image of God so often hurts. There are two parts for time to work to our favor. Because people say time heals our wounds. That's just not true. We all know that it's not true. We just say it because it makes us feel better. If you don't use time right, a bitter root can form in your heart that defiles many. We know that is true. But what helps us use time right? Well, our part is to accept the good with the bad, Townsend says. Not to use the sorting cap with the others or with ourselves, but to accept the good with the bad and say, this is who I am, I'm working on it, I'm trying. I may not know all the answers, but we need to accept the good from the, the, with the bad because we can't divide it from ourselves or from others. And God's part is to control reality and time itself. Ephesians says he has predestined us in love, and most people don't like predestination. Most people don't like the idea that God's choice is greater than our, our choice. This is a Reformed church, a Presbyterian church. I believe it's true. I believe it's true that there are some things in your life that are going to happen and you can't do a darn thing about it, but we can learn from it if we're willing to accept the good and the bad. One story I thought about a lot this week as I was thinking about the star was a story I read back in as I was a teenager. It's a short story about Arthur C. Clarke, who's a uh, well-known science fiction writer. Any Arthur C. Clarke fans here? Man, I'm really, really hitting you out today. <laughs> anyway, it's called The Star, and it's set in the distant future, and there's an astrophysicist who's a Jesuit priest. And the Jesuits have always been able to reconcile science with their faith. And this Jesuit travels to a far-off solar system where thousands of years before there was a supernova destroyed the planet. And they found a tomb on a far-off planet that had the remnants of this civilization that so moved the scientists. And he did the math, and he did the research, and he came to realize, oh my God, that's the star that they saw, the magi saw in the sky. That's the star. This star to lead these magi to Jesus, it obliterated a civilization. We don't know if that's true. It could be true. And what do we do with that? The scientist says this, oh God, there were so many stars you could have used. What was the need to give these people to the fire that the symbol of their passing might shine above in Bethlehem? God doesn't give him a response, but similar questions have been asked in Scripture. When Job cries out to God in his suffering, God finally reveals himself and says this, Who is this that darkens by counsel, by words without knowledge? 
dressed for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretches the line upon it? On where it bases were sunk or laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Paul, in thinking of the own salvation of his people, said this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and hardens the hearts of whoever he wills. You may say to me, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But you, O oh man, who are you to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make us out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand. That's a hard truth, but it's a true truth. This year we need an epiphany. We need an epiphany of the love of Christ in our lives, and in one way we do it is to give ourselves over to God's sovereign hand, to let ourselves be molded as a potter molds the clay, and the other is to accept the good with the bad and to realize where's the false beliefs that we hold. And I'll tell you one false belief I held for a long time because I love Star Wars. Um, Yoda once quoted as saying, do or do not, there is no try. Do or do not, there is no try. And I, I took that and I held on to that. And every time I failed, I felt worthless. Just do it. Do or do not, there is no try. The world sorts us into failures and successes. And it was breaking me until my mentor, the Reverend Dr. Robert Johnson, who spoke at my installation, he took the sorting cap off of me. And he gave me a chance because someone gave him a chance. And I asked him one time, many years later, why'd you choose me? Why'd you choose me, Robert? And he said, because you try. And trying is the essence of spiritual growth. So would you try with me this year to dwell in the love of Christ so that we might not follow signs, but signs would follow us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.